You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Amen. What a blessed time of worship we've had together this morning. And again, just so thankful uh, for God's goodness and his mercy to us. This morning as we have praised and poured out again our uh, songs offerings to the Lord, uh, we realize that we are calling on Him. We realize that we are singing out. We're glorifying Him. At least that's what our words are doing. This morning, what we're going to see is we're going to be looking at this story of the triumphal entry. And we'll see a people whose words were very powerfully glorifying the Lord. They said the right things. Their actions reflected submission. But in reality, there was not a true, real submission and worship. And so today, if you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. And we are going to look at the story of the triumphant entry that Jesus has into Jerusalem. Again, that is John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. Where the Lord tells us, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today, Lord, thanking you so much for your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, we recognize that it is all our hope, all our boast, all our joy. Lord, you alone are worthy to be praised. And Father, we pray that here in this place today, everything we do and say would honor and glorify you. Lord, just as we have prayed about our singing and our offering, so too we pray now about our word, our message Lord, the words that we speak today, we pray they would not be ours, but Lord, they would be yours. Father, this time that we spend in your word, this time we spend studying to see what it is that you have for us to see. Lord, we recognize this is for that your will might be done. And so, Father, we pray today that you would unstop our ears. You would open our eyes. Lord, you would help us to see and understand and to hear what you have for us. 
Lord, challenge us. Equip us. Convict us. Encourage us. Lord, give us exactly what we need. Lord, again, we pray that your will would be done in this place and in everything we do and say. We bring you honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at the context of this passage, it's one that we should be pretty familiar with, given that we have spent a lot of time dealing with the story of Lazarus, and specifically how he died, was raised by Jesus, and then the kind of aftermath of that situation. We remember that back at the very beginning of this kind of chunk of Scripture, and you can go back and either listen to these messages or go back and uh, read in your Bible and, and see that this all begins with this notification sent to Jesus that Lazarus is very sick and is about to die. And Jesus tells the people, he says, this is not going to end in death, right? The end result of this is not death, but rather it is the glory of God. Based on what's going to happen in this situation, God will be glorified and it will be good. The people, they don't always recognize this though. And we saw that as Jesus arrives, he waits until Lazarus is good and dead. He stinketh. He's decaying. He's in the tomb. And in the midst of this, Jesus arrives and the people keep saying the same things. Lord, if you'd only been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus corrected those misconceptions. He, he, he talked to them about miracles and, and their concept of entitlement to them. Then he raises Lazarus from the tomb. And truly he was glorified because many people believed. They saw what he had done. They saw his, his sovereignty even over death. And they believe. And the news was so amazing and it traveled so wide and so far that the Pharisees heard about it and they planned to put Jesus to death because they were afraid of losing their place and their power in the nation and in the temple. We saw that because of this death threat, right, this kind of constant plan, that if anyone saw Jesus, he was to be turned in and put to death. Because of this, Jesus withdrew to a small village until the appropriate time. And last week, we saw that Jesus kind of comes out of this village to attend a dinner in his honor. A thanksgiving. A time of worship. And at this dinner of thanksgiving... They are thanking him for raising Lazarus from the tomb. And Mary's actions showed us the importance of worshiping Christ with all that we have. We talked about that last week. We are to worship Christ with all that we have. But we see today that the word of that spread. And now the crowds are flocking to Jesus. And this sets in motion the remainder of our passage today. It sets in motion the triumphal entry. Session sets in motion the uh, different events of Passion Week up until the moment that Jesus is crucified and then raised again. Beginning this week, we will spend the vast majority of the rest of our time in this series moving forward. We're going to spend this looking at the events of the last week of Jesus' life. Now, you're looking at the book of John, probably going, well, we're roughly halfway. As the second half of the Gospel of John deals with the last weeks. The last week and then the, the weeks following his resurrection. And so as we think about this, from now until we reach John 20, we're dealing with the events between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And so we need to keep that in mind, that for the re basically the rest of our sermon series, that's the context of where we are. 
Today, we are entering the last week of Jesus' life. But today, we see that after the raising of Lazarus and the feast at his home, the crowds, they're flocking to him. And today, we'll learn from their movements and his entry into Jerusalem we're going to see that there's really some powerful truths here in this text. And so what I want to do today is make five key observations about this text. There are five points that we need to discuss surrounding John's account of the triumphal entry. And so we're just going to jump into those today. The first thing I want you to see, the first observation we have here, is the sake of the crowds flocking. Right? Now this is going from a different translation from the way that uh, the ESV uh, describes it. The ESV says that when they learned Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him. Different translations say that, well, uh, the people came not only for Jesus' sake, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. The people did not come only for the sake of Jesus, but to see the signs that he performed. Now, last week we talked about this in the, in the sense that we should come for Christ alone. We're here to worship Christ alone alone. Not what he can do for us, not for the show, not for the spectacle. We are here to worship Christ for who he is. That's the top of our priority as a church. And we worship him for what he has done as well. But the the idea here is that these folks, as so often has happened in the Gospels, they're here for the spectacle. They're here to be entertained, to see a show, to get something out of it. And we need to remember that Jesus himself is enough reason to be here. Jesus himself is enough. We don't need anything else. But what we realize and what we see if we open our eyes is that all around us there are people who come not just on account of Jesus, not just for Jesus' sake, but for something extra. You see, we live in a plus world. Have you noticed that? Everything today is whatever plus. There's Disney, and then there's Disney Plus. There's Paramount, and there's Paramount Plus. These days, there's even Walmart Plus. We need to remember that church is not a subscription tier where we come, and the baseline is Jesus, and then we we come for the plus. Most of the time, we just kind of take the Jesus part for granted. And again, we come for this plus, but it is only Jesus. And he alone is more than enough. Now, one evidence that this is still going on today is the statistics and the difference between the number of those who claim to be believers and those who actually worship him. Right? This is true globally. Basically, if we look at the statistics of the world, about a third of the world claims to follow Christ. Roughly a third of the world. And we look around and we look at the way that, that people live their lives, the fruit of that, and we see that clearly a third of the world is not an accurate reflection. But it's also true in the Southern Baptist Convention. Every year when we go to the the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, we're blessed to go and be a part of it, and we're thankful for the partnerships and the friendships that we have. But we go and we, we talk about numbers every year, and we claim all these millions upon millions upon millions of members. But then when the statistics comes out, worship attendance is like maybe a tenth of that at best. You see, people won't show up 
unless there is more than just worship. We see it all the time. Share with you before, uh, there was a famous professional fisherman from my hometown who said that he was a buzzard Baptist. He came when somebody died or when there was something to eat. But we see that happen in, in serious sense all the time. At least he was honest about it. You see, folks will come to special services where there's food, right? We all like to eat. They'll come to a special event where there's entertainment. I think I I meet more church members at 4th of July than I have any other time. People will show up for these things because they're there for the plus. Now, I'm not talking about outreach to lost people, right? Like, that's to be expected, That a lost person would not come just to worship Christ. We understand that because of their sinfulness. But what I'm talking about are people who claim genuine faith in Christ. They They claim to be a believer, but can't come to church unless it's Jesus plus something else. And at best, that person is a believer that grieves the Spirit. Because like I said last week, we cannot come face to face with the Lord. We cannot pass from dead in sins to being a new creation and born again and not worship Jesus. This is not just in the Southern Baptist Convention in the world. This is right here at Bellevue Baptist Church. You can go in that room and you can pull out a book that has thousands of names written on it. And we look around and we go, where are they? Where are they? Some of them have moved away. Some of them have died. Some of them have joined other faithful churches. But a lot of them haven't. We were having a conversation about this at the the senior adult dinner the other night. Most of the time when I go out in the community, I meet somebody who says, I used to go to Bellevue. We'll ask them, well, where are you now? They're like, well, I don't go anywhere. We look at this, this inconsistency between the claim that we're a believer and then the actual fruit of that, which says, I don't show up for worship unless there's something there to entertain me or to give me something extra. And that's a problem. And it can't stay that way, and it's not going to stay that way. Even now, we're in the process of going through the books and finding out where these people are. And if we reach out and get no response and no one has seen them, or worse, no one can even tell us who they are, then we're going to bring that before the church. Because we need to take action and have an accurate count of our church membership to those actively involved in this church. And I'm not talking about shut-ins or sick people or people traveling or legitimate reasons you can't be here. We're talking about so-called believers in Christ who can't be bothered to show up. The Bible never discusses inactive church members because there is no such thing. Disciples would have never allowed someone to claim to be a believer and need something other than Jesus to get them here. It's not biblical. And if that's you, I return to last week and I ask, is Jesus not worth it? Is his bearing the punishment you deserve not worthy of you showing up and worshiping him? If we cannot get here on Sunday morning without something special to draw us, then we're answering the question by saying, no, he isn't worth it. He's not worth our time. 
And furthermore, if we're not able to worship him for one hour on Sunday morning, we're certainly not able to worship him with every aspect and hour of our life during the week. I had a friend tell me recently that someone had left their church because the coffee was bad. And he told him, he said, listen, this is a good church. The gospel's being preached. And the guy said, oh yeah, I I believe that. He's like, this is a good church. The gospel is being preached. He said, but I can't go to a church that has bad coffee. And so uh, my, my friend told him, he said, well, this church that you're wanting to go to, he said, this is awful. It's... It's not faithful. There's no substance in the preaching. The worship is all feel-good and smoke machines. And so they, they confronted him about it, and he said, yeah, but they have good coffee. The point was that for him, church was about something else. Jesus was there, sure, but it was, it was about the coffee. Now, I know that that's extreme, but it's real. And we begin to think about this. You can substitute just about any other thing there. And we start to see it happening all the time around us. See, if Jesus is not the reason you come here, then what is? Ultimately, if you're not here to worship Jesus, then you're here for the wrong reasons. This is not a game. It's not a place of entertainment. It is a church. And the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the head of our church, and he is worthy to be praised, and so we need to get it together. We need to be people who are characterized by worshiping him with everything that we have. Let us not be people who gather here, not only for Jesus, but to see the other stuff. Let us be people who gather here for Christ alone. So we see not only the sake of their flocking to him, but we also see this scheme to silence Lazarus. Here in, is our second thing this morning in verses 10 through 11, the scheme to silence. In verses 10 and 11, we see that the chief priests, they make plans, they scheme to kill Lazarus because his resurrection disproved their theology. This is interesting. I've shared with you before that there were two main branches of Jewish thought, right? We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the vast majority, specifically of popular-level Jews. If you met a Jew out on the street, more than likely, he would have subscribed to Phariseeism. The common folks, the teachers, all these folks were generally Pharisees. But at this time period, the records show that even though the Pharisees were the large majority, it was the chief priests at that time who were mostly... Sadducees. The chief priests during that moment, they were the ones um, who were embracing Sadduceeism. Shared with you before that Sadducees are very sad because they don't believe in a resurrection. This is important because it tells us a big part of their motive. You see, the Bible tells us they're wanting to kill Lazarus because the fact that he was dead and now lives is a big testament to who Christ is. It's a testament to the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. But the Sadducees, they had this doctrinal belief that there's no resurrection, there's no life after death. That's why they're sad. But the fact that Lazarus was dead four days and now is walking around makes the Sadducee doctrine impossible. 
by Jesus raising Lazarus, it proves there is resurrection. There is an afterlife. But rather than changing their doctrine and believing in what they now know to be true, because Lazarus is walking around, they seek to silence Lazarus by killing him. And here's the motive. They would rather protect what they're used to believing and believe what they want to believe rather than believe in the truth of the gospel. And they were willing to kill someone to keep it that way. And this experientially proves true all the time, right? The bloodiest fights I've seen in churches or amongst believers are doctrinal. And it always occurs that one side of the fight is usually someone who would rather kill their brother to believe something convenient rather than embrace the truth. Rather believe something because they like it than whether or not it's true. Churches implode over this. It's not about what we like. It is about what is true. And if you are willing to attack someone who speaks and testifies to the truth so you can keep on believing something false because you like it, you're as sad as the saddest Sadducee. It will poison a church. I have a dear brother who is a faithful pastor. He's gifted. He knows the word, but a fellow staff member didn't like that he was preaching the truth, and that staff member went around and poisoned the church against him until he left. You see, doctrine is important for us to understand because doctrine divides in a good way, right? First of all, it separates us from the world and from false religions. Good doctrine is absolutely necessary. If our doctrine is right, everything else will fall into place. And this is what we as a church need to remember. What's the answer for fixing any problem we have? It's right doctrine. It's understanding what the Lord has said. It's staking it all on the word. There's a time to fight. There's also a time when we can be charitable. There are those first order doctrines which divide believers from non-believers. Things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Things like the five solas, the authority of scripture. These are non-negotiables. There's second order doctrines which divide denominations, right? Things like mode of baptism and church governance. Then there are also third order doctrines. These things really shouldn't divide us. Things like eschatology. Again, we see people who agree on 99% of everything but have differing opinions over things like the rapture ready to fight each other. We fight over first-order doctrines. We join a denomination that is most faithful on second-order doctrines, but we can live with each other if we have different opinions on whether or not there is a rapture. Dr. Booker, who preached here a while back, He said something uh, in a seminar that I had with him that just was so poetic. And he may have gotten it from somewhere, I don't know. But I'll attribute it to him for the moment. He said, you don't have to be my twin to be my brother. I thought that was beautiful. But you do have to have the same father, though. And we need to recognize that for us, that is humbling ourselves under the Lord Jesus. It's following his word. We have to go by what the word says, not what I want it to say, and there is a difference. We have to have the same father. In order for we can be 
brothers. But the non-negotiable is that we have to be believers to be brothers. A lot of times we spend all our time crying for unity when what we're really asking for is to be joined to non-believers and it'd be okay. There has to be a difference. We need to know when the time to stand is and when the time is to be charitable and love one another. These Sadducees, they weren't willing to change to the truth. See, we shouldn't be willing to change when, when we're founded and staked on right doctrine and truth. But if we can clearly come to the Bible and we see where what we have been believing is wrong, then we need to trust in the truth of God's word. Complacency is the destruction of a fool. Guys, if we are complacent to just keep going with what we're doing with no biblical foundation, then we're in trouble. Thirdly, I want you to see the supposition of the crowds. The triumphal entry. So these crowds come around, right? The people have gathered together around Jesus. They've come to see him not only because he's Jesus, but because of Lazarus. They've, chief priests have now made plans to kill Lazarus. But the next day, this crowd catches wind of some news. They hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So they take out their palm branches. They went out to meet him. They cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. All of this that's going on in God's providence is pushing Jesus toward the cross. Right? Everything that's happening is, is moving Jesus toward that pivotal point in all of human history. Triumphal entry is an amazing scene to imagine, right? Can't help but get caught up in, in the emotion of it all. The palm branches are waving, the cries of Hosanna are echoing. Just seems like an amazing thing to have witnessed. And we tend to present this fickleness of this crowd because they open him, they welcome him with open arms on Sunday, and then on Friday they crucify him. We say, Oh, that crowd is so fickle. And it kind of seems a little dramatic to us until we consider the context. Remember, Jesus teaches a lot of heavy stuff in the next few days. The Bible tells us that those who persevere to the end, they're, they're believers. There are people who, who come along and they, they say, well, I believe in Jesus. But in reality, they depart the faith. And we know that was never a real faith in the first place. And so some of these people, they may have believed in Jesus, so to speak, and then when Jesus really gets down into the, the depth of what he's teaching, when he really starts delivering these truths, they can't bear it, and they walk away. They were never believers in the first place. Now, there are also people in this, though, and, and I believe this is the vast majority of what's going on here. The, the bigger issue is, you see, the crowds thought they were getting one thing, and then they got another. Right? They thought they were getting one thing, and then something completely different is what they actually got. And we as people don't do well with that. And if you don't believe it, just think that you're drinking sweet tea and when it actually hits your mouth, it's unsweet. It's a problem. When we expect to get one thing and we get something else, we don't do well. You see, the crowds wrongly suppose that Christ was coming as a political leader. This is shown in several ways. First of all, they're waving palm branches. 
This was highly political. You see, the palm branch was the national symbol of the nation of Israel. If you could travel back to ancient Israel in that day, and you could pick up the coins that they used on the street, if you looked on the back of that coin, you would find palm branches. It's a national symbol. It had been that way really since uh, the time of the Maccabean revolt, about 200 years before Jesus. These people called the Maccabees, they rose up and they kind of threw off all of the people who were ruling over them at the time, and they had some Jewish independence for a little bit until Rome came in. But because they waved those palm branches during that revolt, that was the symbol of Jewish independence. When we wave those palm branches, it is a representation of the Jewish nation state. The modern day equivalent for us would be waving American flags. Right? Essentially, if this happened in America today, for us to contextualize this a little bit, it would be like Jesus riding into Washington, D.C., and all the people waving American flags. This is a predominantly political motion because they wrongly assumed that the Messiah would deliver them from Rome and set up the kingdom again. They missed all the points about salvation. And if we look at what they're saying here, they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even what? The king of Israel. They're speaking about this in, in political terms here. So yeah, they're saying Hosanna, which means Lord, please save us. Please save us. But what they're asking him to save them from is Roman rule, not their sins. They're calling him the Messiah, but they aren't thinking he's there to save them from their sins. They think he is riding in, and with all these miracles he's able to do, surely he has supernatural power to overthrow the Romans and reestablish Jewish independence. So their cries for salvation were not so much spiritual as they were political. They were okay with their worship, they were okay with their sins, but they were not okay with their political situation. This is more like a political rally than worship. Have you ever been to one? Rose and I have been to presidential political rallies, and uh, it was wild, man. It's a time of national pride. The outcries for the candidate to fix what's wrong. And we may have wildly different ideas about what's wrong with the USA, but the same was true in the triumphal entry. They were begging him, come in and fix our nation. Please, save it. Jesus was coming to save them from the real issue they had, not the political problem that they thought. And so we need to be careful not to ascribe motives to Jesus that weren't there. Because the reason that 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 crowd turns on him so quickly is because they had a completely wrong understanding of who Jesus was in the first place. We need to be very careful because having a right understanding of who Jesus is keeps us, for the most part, on the right track. If we start with the wrong understanding of Jesus, we're completely off base from the beginning. And sometimes we view Jesus in a way that the Bible never tells us about. See, the Bible has clearly presented Jesus as he is. Right? It clearly tells us what we need. Uh, The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy that it is everything we need that we may be complete. If we want to be complete believers, we don't need all this extra stuff. We need what the Word of God has told us. Right, one of the, the things that just fires me up on this is like the, the he gets us garbage on TV commercials. 
They're just trying to do exactly what they did at the triumphal entry. They're trying to make Jesus a political activist rather than a savior. That's not it. It's not what we need, and it's not who he is. But we make wrong suppositions about Jesus all the time, and then we wonder, why is it that we have all these problems? For years, I remember walking by at multiple churches that I attended a picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. It was a false portrayal. And so in my mind, when I'm confronted with this as a kid, it didn't make any sense. Why is Jesus blonde-haired and blue-eyed? He's from the Middle East. All these movies and shows that portray Christ are by default a problem because by nature they can't accurately reflect Jesus because they're fallen people that have to add things to Scripture to make what they're doing. They're fallen people trying to portray a perfect Savior. And so we need to be very careful not to make suppositions about Jesus or think about Jesus in a way that the Bible never says. Because how did the Jews get the bad idea that he was going to be this person? Bad ideas of Jesus come from bad teaching and extra-biblical sources. For them, for years, the Jews had been coming up with all kinds of nonsense. As the, the Jewish writings, some of them are wild. They're extra-biblical. Trust me, I've read them. It is a mess. And the problem is this whole system that they had arrived at, it was nowhere near what God had instituted because it's full of all this stuff from outside. Bad teaching. So we need to be careful that we don't start with the wrong supposition about Jesus because that ultimately leads to a rejection. We need to have the right understanding of Jesus. Fourthly, I want you to see the significance of his coming. Verses 14 through 18 here. We see that it says, Jesus found the young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And it says his disciples, they didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. We look at this, we realize that it's very clearly shown here that Jesus is doing what he's doing. He came to fulfill the word of God and God's plan. Now we see this in the quotation of Zechariah. Right? This uh, verse here, verse 15, is a quotation from Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If we read that, we see very clearly, again here, it's talking about righteousness, it's talking about salvation, it's talking about the humility of Christ. And we see that this is exactly what happened. But we also see this in the preaching of Peter on Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter's preaching says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The point was that this was the plan of God, that Jesus would ultimately ride in, and then on Friday he'd be crucified. To pay the price for 
for our sins. You see, the disciples, they all didn't quite get it in the moment, but later they look back and they see that everything Jesus did was to fulfill the word of God. We see it here just as it is written. He did these things. Disciples, they remember the things that had been written about him, and they saw what had been done to him. They said, man, this is 100%. He did exactly what the Bible said he would do. They look back and they see that everything Jesus did was to fulfill God's word. This teaches us several things, right? God's working his perfect plan and has been from before the foundation of the world. We see that the word of God can be trusted because it gets prophecy right. Zechariah, you know, hundreds of years before had prophesied this and here he is, perfectly fulfilling it. And so if it was right on everything else, it would be right about his return as well. And so we can trust God's word. We need to remember that everything he does is to bring glory to God and fulfill God's will. He is intentional here. Jesus rides in on a donkey, not a war horse. He comes humbly, knowing that the same crowd that's cheering for him right now will curse him, spit on him, and condemn him to death on the cross. The same crowd that's cheering for him now will cheer for a murderer to come out instead of him. But he goes willingly. Not for the 15 minutes of fame and their cheers, but for our eternity and for our souls. And the significance is that he didn't have to go at all. But he did. He went willingly to the cross where he had the weight of all of our sins placed on him. He took the full brunt of God's holy wrath and justice on sin. He paid the price we should have paid. He took the punishment we should have taken. And he died for our sins. But on the third day he rose again. And then later he ascended to heaven and is waiting at the right hand of the Father until his return. If we believe in him and repent of our sin by his grace, we are saved. That's the significance. As we wrap it up today and we kind of come to a conclusion on this message, I want you just to finally and fifthly see in the last verse, verse 19, the sorrow of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they're, they're here and they're looking at this and they see all these crowds following them and and. They're just bummed out. I mean, we're not getting anywhere. The world's going after Christ. We're not getting anywhere. We've accomplished nothing. Because the whole world, they're going after him. The Pharisees are sad, right? Uh, because the world is going after Jesus when we tend to have the opposite problem. And we also throw a pity party and, and we say, well, we aren't getting anywhere. The whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's all lost. It's all messed up. And though the world is a desperately lost and wicked place, we need to remember this. The Pharisees knew that when people saw the beauty and truth of Christ, they'd follow. They, they understood that, seemingly, because they're lamenting about it right here. We need to remember there's no stopping the gospel from doing its work. God promises it will not return void. Pharisees, they're boohooing about that because they know that their time is done. But we should strive to see the world go after him. That should be our, our rallying cry. 
that the world go after Christ. Again, that idea of going after it, it means to follow. Truly. You know, I often wonder if the enemies of the church look around our town and our community and they're sad because we're going after Christ. And I think sometimes they're not sad. I think sometimes they're rejoicing because we look just like them. The first step in seeing the world go after him is to take a step in following him ourselves. When we do that, we actively share. If we're a believer, we must share this gospel with those around us. It is our reasonable service. We're commanded by Christ to do this. And so if we're here as a believer today, we need to recognize that we should have joy in the gospel. As when we gather together, we gather for the sake of Christ, not anything else. We stand on the right doctrines and we fight for those. We need to make sure that we don't have the wrong suppositions about who Christ is. We embrace and we preach the significance of the gospel. And doggone it, we better be going after him. This is our charge today. Follow Christ alone. He is worth it. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come before you. We're thanking you again for your grace and mercy because, Lord, we recognize that were it not for your goodness, were it not for your grace in saving us, that, Lord, we would be hopelessly and helplessly lost. Father, we pray that today in this place we would take this seriously, that, Lord, we would uh, apply this word to our hearts. Father, we would not just be hearers but doers. Lord, we pray that our church would truly go after you. Not the stuff of the world, not the distractions of the enemy, but Lord, you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move in our midst now, Lord, that your will would be done. You would show us what you would have us to do. In Christ's name, amen.